This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Patterson Program, where you'll learn how to improve your health from the inside out. And now, your host, Clint Patterson. Today I've got a guest who's going to talk about something a little different that we don't cover too much on the show, but it is a condition that's very debilitating and very serious, but we have a positive edge to it. And we're going to be talking today about multiple sclerosis and how well it can be limited in its progress with right nutrition and the right approach. And so I'd like to welcome Rebecca Stoner onto this episode. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, we connected online on Facebook and turns out that uh, we're both Aussies and that we're both going to be attending a conference early in February, which we can talk about a little bit later, a very exciting conference. And you told me about your situation and told me how well you are doing with your awful diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. And so I thought my audience could really do with a success story outside of the realm of psoriatic arthritis or lupus or rheumatoid and these things that we hear a lot about because we don't want to pigeonhole a wonderful or ultimate approach of a plant-based diet to just one disease. We want to be able to look at other conditions and see how powerful this is and how it really is a one-size-fits-all in that you're really just taking nature's best offerings, which are nutritious plants and putting them into a body uh, that finds it easy to digest and assimilate nutritious plants. And so that's why I wanted to bring you on the show and and talk about your fabulous lack of progress is the way to say it with multiple sclerosis. So uh, let's start by going back to when it happened. You're obviously uh, young to talk about how this began and what the diagnosis was and when and what that felt like. Sure. My first symptom that I could sort of really put my finger on was um, vision problems. So with my right eye, my vision was sort of blurred. And because I wear glasses, I thought, I probably just need a new pair of glasses. Um, But it went on for a long time. And it was a different, it was, it's hard to explain. But anyway, I went to an optometrist. They had no idea. I ended up going to emergency at the hospital because, you know, changes in one eye that's quite dramatic can be quite serious. So I went to emergency. They had no idea. I ended up seeing, actually, I ended up um, Googling uh, changes in my vision, and you shouldn't use Dr. Google. I did, and I kind of self-diagnosed. But anyway, um, I eventually saw an optical neurologist, so a woman that sort of knows about the brain-eye connection because really your eyes are just an extension of your central nervous system. And she sent me off for an MRI. The MRI showed I had multiple lesions in my brain. So multiple sclerosis uh, really means um, multiple scars. So I think I had about six or seven spots in my brain um, and my optic nerve was damaged as well. So, yeah, she diagnosed me with having multiple sclerosis, which was horrific. Um, My experience with MS so far before that was um, I had an aunt by marriage, not by blood, uh, Mm. who had MS who I think she's still alive. Um, she can maybe move a finger on one hand now, but she's she'll probably end up on life support. Like she, when she had it, there were really no options. There were no medication. They probably didn't know about diet changes. 
and she progressed quite badly. And it also affected her mood. She was always a very angry person. So I just thought I was going to go down that road. I thought I was going to be in a wheelchair. So it was really, really scary. Yeah, I think with those sorts of diagnoses, you go through lots of like a process of grieving and denial and all those really typical sort of feelings. So it was really hard. But I, I have a science background. Um, I studied science and I worked in science for about 18 years. So I got on the internet again mm-hmm. <laughs> and just typed in basically like what can I do, um, you know, diet, nutrition, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I quickly found that there was a lot that I could actually do to help myself. When you get a diagnosis of MS, I think that it's almost, um, if you want to say, the stereotypical most unwanted diagnosis other than cancer. Yeah, yeah. It I really always is. thought yeah. to be diagnosed with anything, like a degenerative neurological condition has to be the worst because, you know, you see people around, and I see people around now that I know just by looking at them that they've got MS and I think, you know, that's really unfortunate. Um, and I just think so many people could do so much better for themselves. Mm. They choose not to. Well, let's talk about that in a moment. Before we do, you mentioned medications. Yeah. So what medications get presented as the correct approach or the standard approach upon diagnosis? There are a few. There are they don't have really good what's the word? So basically um, with MS, there are relapses. So it's called relapse and remitting MS. There are other forms of MS, but that's the most typical one where you have a relapse, it slowly goes away, the symptoms go away, and then you have another relapse. And it gets to the point where you don't heal anymore and you keep getting worse and worse and then there's disability and whatever. Um, So they reduce relapse rates. So the best one on the market might reduce relapse rates by 50 to 60%. There are injectables that you can have, so you need to inject yourself either every day or every few days, which sounded pretty awful. <laughs> I don't want to do that. There's some oral medications, and then there's also like a transfusion, almost like a chemotherapy, where you knock out all of your adult immunity, basically, and then you sort of rebuild from there. They're, they're apparently quite successful, but also have their you know, downsides to them as well. So there's a lot out there. There's a lot more than there used to be, which is great. But so I had a, an MS nurse come and visit me after my diagnosis and you always know that you know, you've got something pretty serious if they send out a nurse to come and talk to you at your home. Um, and she went through all of them and it was just so confusing, so much to think about. But she did sort of mention to me that, you know, maybe low saturated fat diet has shown to help some people, but that's basically all she said. She didn't go into any detail but she went into a lot of detail about the medications. Um, So for me, like reducing relapse by 50% wasn't really enough. Like I thought, well, that means instead of having one every year or every six months, I'm going to have them just a little bit less, but I'm still going to have them. And I didn't really like that. (laughs) I kind of wanted never to have another one again. So, I mean, I, I did start medication. The first medication I tried, lost half my hair, just fill out in clumps. What was it called? Or what range of med- what sort of medication was it? Yeah, that was an oral. Um, I don't the thing about them as well is that they, they give you these medications, they don't actually know how they work. Mm. They they do something to mm. help, but they don't actually know what it is actually doing inside your body. So that's a bit scary. Well my my rheumatologist told me something similar when he said to add antibiotics to my methotrexate. And so I was adding antibiotics to methotrexate, but he said we don't really understand or the medical 
publications don't fully have a grasp on why the antibiotics can, in some people, help to reduce symptoms. So, you know, years and years later, I think I have a very good understanding why that occurs, but certainly not in the published literature. And so I think it's probably similar, you know, when you've got... When you've got one of these very complicated conditions, you know, yeah, people who are doing the research on drugs to match with the reduction of the symptoms are not looking at all as to where it's coming from. They're looking at how to suppress those symptoms with this particular drug. And so it's, you know, the focus is completely elsewhere. Yeah, mm. yeah. Actually, it's interesting you say that there is, I can't remember which one it is, but there is an MS drug that if you incorporate it with a low dose of an antibiotic, it's more effective. And again, yeah, they don't know why. So, yeah, well, but well, it comes back to the microbiome, doesn't it? It comes back to good bacteria and bad bacteria. And if you've completely got a dramatic overgrowth of bad bacteria, and then you drop atomic bombs which kill bacteria, uh, which are antibiotics, into your digestive tract, then the majority or the bulk of death <laughs> occurs from bad bacteria. And so you're probably going to feel better. But then you're left with a wasteland uh, with no bacteria at all if you keep it up for long enough, and then that's disastrous for your health as well. So, yeah, there's um, there's definitely the implication of antibiotics with autoimmune conditions. Yeah. But I never see a good argument for antibiotics for autoimmune conditions. And I know there's popularity around some protocols out there which are sort of dying in popularity, but... Definitely, uh, they exist, and um, yeah, I have my views on that, which are which which are pretty strong. Okay, so tell us now back to your story. So you tried some medications for a while. You said you've got a, a science background, just like myself. So did you, um, when you began looking online, come across some really popular dietary options that you thought you might give a go? Yeah, yeah. The first one I found, and I think I was looking on YouTube, you know, looking at TED talks and things like that, and. Uh, there's a TED Talk on YouTube by Terry Walls. So she's a doctor in the US um, who has MS. Um, she ended up in a wheelchair, uh, really bad state, um, and she changed her diet with a whole lot of supplementation and a paleo approach. So she looked into the science, obviously. She looked at things like dairy and gluten and all that kind of stuff, and she took a paleo approach and did very, very well. So her story is really compelling. She advocates for, I think, nine cups of highly coloured fruits and vegetables a day, so lots of dark leafy greens, like maybe four cups, lots of berries, and try and avoid uh, fruits and vegetables without colour. So if you're going to eat potato, you eat sweet potato rather than uh, white potato. So that was really interesting. So I started on that straight away. And because her story is so compelling, so she went from being in a wheelchair to being unaided and riding bikes and exercising and all that sort of stuff. So mm. I thought, great, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and I did, but that, the, the thing that that woman said, um, the nurse who came to visit me about saturated fat having an implication in MS, I just thought, you know, the amount of fat in the meat that I was consuming, because, you know, she talks about bacon, you fry bacon, you put your kale in it, and it was just a lot of fat. And mm. it, I, I looked a little bit further Um and then there was uh, somebody called Swank, Roy Swank. Yeah. Um, he did a study in the 50s. Um, he looked at 144 people with MS. He put half of them on a low-fat diet and half of them on, a, I guess, a standard average diet. And those on the low-fat diet did really, really well. 
Um, I think there'd been population studies where they showed that uh, people in war times, MS was hardly around. Yeah. So they were and they had hardly any meat or dairy, you know, like they were eating the cabbages out of the garden or that kind yep. of stuff. Yep. There was no MS. And it's also geographical. So with MS, it's um, the further you go away from the, equate, the equator, the higher the rates of MS. So, you know, living in South Australia, you know, obviously it's nice and sunny Mediterranean climate, but we don't get as much sun. So there's some sort of geographical, maybe vitamin D, maybe actually just sun exposure. I don't think they've actually decided on what it is. Mm. So Royce Wayne looked at all of those sort of studies and, yeah, his his diet was he did incorporate some lean meats, um, some egg whites, some fish, lots of vegetables, but uh, basically keeping it to under 20 grams of saturated fat a day, which to me um, is actually really high, 20 grams. You know, you can do that easily without eating fried foods or out, without eating, you know, fashioned meat. Mm. Ones who... Ate just a little bit more. So that this was the interesting thing about his study. Um, if you ate just a few grams over the 20 grams saturated fat a day, you did very poorly. So I think by the end of his study, 80% of those people had actually died. And I think something like um, maybe about 80% of those were from MS. So they progressed to the point where they were disabled and they died of MS. And that's just a few grams of fat extra. So that was really interesting. So from there, um, there's a doctor in Australia called George Jelinek. Um, He looked at Swank's work and he developed the overcoming MS uh, protocol. So I went on to that. That was the next thing. Um, You know, this is my journey of um, Googling, reading heaps of books, um, Mm -hmm. lots of of information. Um, So it is a bit of a journey. Like you've got to start somewhere. And Mm -hmm. I think my start with, the paleo approach was actually a really good start because I learned, learned about nutrient density. Um, so I still incorporate that in my diet today. But George's work, so he has MS himself. His mother um, had MS to the point where she was quite disabled. She actually ended up taking her own life because her MS was so bad and she didn't want to be dependent on other people. So George um, looked into all the factors that affect people's MS. So he looked into diet. His program also incorporates um vitamin D and sunshine, meditation for stress reduction, exercise is really important, uh, and sleep, another important factor for people. So I went on to that. And so George's um, program does incorporate fish as well. That was okay, and egg whites, and, yeah, I was doing okay on that. But then, you know, doing some more research, (laughs) um, and I learned about just inflammation, basically, and all animal products and how they lead to inflammation. So... I ended up giving up fish. So now I'm more on a just basically whole food plant-based diet, which all of them have that element. But I think the very low saturated fat, whole foods and nutrient-dense plants from all of the studies that I've seen, I think and I hope is the best way forward for me. So Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, we're about to hear about your results in more detail and certainly from a results point of view which are the ultimate indicator of success. I mean, nothing beats results. And I've always said this in, um, you know, I used to be working in a high-tech startup company when I was coming out of university and um, I was in the production line. I was in charge of, you know, making sure that we met our numbers each week with these fiber optic products that were being shipped to Japan and Canada and the US. And um, sometimes we were uh, doing things that we didn't even understand. 
there were, there were, I mean, what we were doing, we were imprinting patterns into optical fibers that were nanometers separate, not millimeters, not micrometers, yeah. but, but nano, nanometers, okay, and it's so small as indetectable. And we were getting these results, and um, it was unusual the way we were doing it. But I said, I don't care how it works. And I'm arguing with the PhD students. I don't care. My job is to get them out of the door. We have the results. The customer's happy. And yeah. and and that was our philosophy. And I stuck with it. And we were gr- wildly successful. And the yeah. components were successful and everything was great. Nothing beats results. If you get the results, who cares how you got there? Yeah, yeah. Now, let me just, I've, I'm familiar with everyone you mentioned in your evolution to <laughs> your current platform. Now, let me just make my own personal observations. Um, Dr. Terry Walls, she's um, got a, a very famous name in the autoimmune sphere, and a lot of people who don't have MS are familiar with her, uh, her work as well. She's uh, crossed over, not just from MS, but into sort of the whole autoimmune space. Her book's wildly popular and all that sort of stuff. And the image of her being in a wheelchair and then walking and speaking on stage is very powerful and compelling, just like you said. Now, my personal views um, on her work is that she succeeded in spite of the meat in her diet, not because of, but in spite of. If you eat that much wonderful rich, colourful fruits every day and, a, and an inordinate amount of vegetables, then that can counteract the negative impact of whatever else you have in your diet as well that day. It's like she's saying, throw some kale on the bacon. What she's virtually saying is, let's try and offset the bacon with the kale. Use it as a condiment if you, if you want that flavour. Yeah. Right, right. So, look, these are just my personal views, and I think that if she went a little bit further and uh, just eliminated the rest of the problem and got rid of the meat too, then she'd have the ultimate plan. But uh, I'm not sure if that's consistent with um, what people want to hear. People don't want to give up and, the and bacon. How popular, how popular is paleo and paleo and keto and whatever that's you right. know? So it's it's a marketing thing too, I think. There is definitely a much greater return if she continues to have things in her offerings that people like to eat. Now, I don't know that science supports bacon for multiple sclerosis. (laughs) I don't think it ever will. Uh, When you talk about Roy Swank, he's one of my heroes, if you like, Dr. McDougall's heroes. It's funny how there's the hero chain. (laughs) And and, uh, the way Dr. McDougall put it is that he stands on the shoulders of other heroes, and Dr. Swank's work is is some of the most pioneering of all. The way that Dr. McDougall talks about Dr. Swank's work is that it was mostly fruit and white rice. That's the way he describes a lot of his dietary recommendations, just fruit and rice. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you think about fruit and rice, there's very little fat in that, almost zero. Yeah. And I wasn't aware that he had some of those other... Uh, allowances that you mentioned, and maybe at times he did, and at times he he peeled back on those recommendations, or maybe they were for people who just really were finding it hard to remain compliant, well, and they were compromises, perhaps. I think it, you get better adherence to the program if you if people can have a little bit of those foods they're familiar with, um, and like with the paleo approach, or even um, George Shillinak's approach, where he incorporates a bit of fish and egg whites. Well, that means you can have a little bit of cake occasionally, you know, and, and he says a little bit of olive oil is okay. So it means you can have cake at parties or um, you can go out to eat with friends if you can have a little bit of salmon. 
So that I think just helps people mm. stick. It's not too extreme to go yep. from you know eating a meat heavy diet to eating just only plants. So yep. yeah, stick to it. Yep, completely agree. Um, and so now to speak on, on George's work, I actually have open on the on my screen uh, at the moment uh, the cover of his book. I bought his Kindle book about a year ago, and I enjoyed reading through that just so that I could familiarize myself with the approach that yep. Yep. he gets cool. so much success with. And you've got the hard copy right behind you, it seems. Yes. Yeah, fabulous. You've got the um, the more recent That's edition. Newer edition, and it's got yep. um, newer science in it too, which is really good. Awesome. And that's the thing I really like about George is that he still continues to look at the research. Um, and I'm on a few Facebook groups and forums and things. And every time there's a bit of new research that maybe counteracts something that he has said in this book, he'll just, you know, put it out there and say, I think there was something about salt recently. Salt was meant to be very bad with, for people with autoimmunity, but there was an even more recent study that showed actually they couldn't find that. So he said, well, maybe if you want a little bit of salt to make you food tastes nicer, then let's have a little bit, but, you know, not too much. Well, that's really interesting and supports my work because I encourage people to put some Celtic sea salt or Himalayan sea salt on their meals because by doing so, it helps them stay compliant to the meals and the meals will save their life. And so if we need a little salt, it's the least of our worries compared to if we give up, right? Then we've got an enormous worry. Yeah, so that's always been my view, and it's of course there's a subtlety in that explanation that's got to be carefully, you know, explained. And so uh, that's my view on this. So I'm enjoying where this is going. I love George's work as well. I enjoyed reading his book, and what was interesting to me was that he did say a little bit of olive oil's okay, a little bit of fish is okay, and I must say it frustrated me because I'm a purist in terms of pure plant based, and yet I also. Um, remained humble and thought, you know what, Clint, just because you work with autoimmune conditions that are inflammatory arthritis, it does not mean that it's the same for multiple sclerosis. And maybe, although you don't believe it, just maybe (laughs) you have to have a little bit of this animal fish or you have to have a little bit of olive oil. And it's never sat well with me. And so please, let's talk about that. I know we're only going off personal opinions here, but what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so George goes into detail in his book about um, the inflammation caused by oils and there's good fats and bad fats and, you know, I mean, everybody argues that coconut oil is a good fat, but really it's not. But he talks about, like, I should read the book again to get the details, but it's about um, the immune response. So you're putting these oils into your body, these fats that aren't working well with your cells so he goes to the cellular level so some of the science is pretty in depth and he has little summaries in there which is really good if you don't want to get bogged down in the science but somebody like me who wants to read the details it's all there um so he advocates for using flaxseed oil so i'm sort of you know the more i read about oils and the purification process and stuff i don't know if i really want to but there are studies to show that just having flaxseed oil in your diet is so anti-inflammatory that it will help reduce relapse rates and multiple sclerosis. So he advocates, I think, 20 mils a day. Olive oil is doesn't cause inflammation, but it doesn't reduce inflammation. So, But it has a higher saturated fat content. So when you start out on this program, you do tend to count the grams of saturated fat, and it can help in the beginning. And then you sort of get an idea of how much you're consuming. 
Um, he says some nuts and seeds are okay because they're lower in saturated fat. Um, I'm tending to go without any nuts or seeds at the moment because mm. they can be quite inflammatory. Mm. Um, so, yeah, a little bit of olive oil for him is okay. For me, the more I read about oils, the less, especially when they're purified. So if you're having olives, that's okay. If you're having flax seeds in your smoothie, awesome. Um, but having them purified and so calorie dense and the saturated fat. I mean, you know, you put olive oil in the fridge and it goes fairly hard because it has that saturated fat content. Mm. But my idea is, you know, I still want to go out with friends and family occasionally and have a meal. So I usually go get some sort of big vegetable dish, whether it's a salad or something like that, and just say, you know, dressing. I usually bring my own little dressing in a little jar and but if I do happen to get a little bit of oil on something, then I'm okay. Because at home, you know, I'm pretty strict with what I eat. I mean, looking at Swank's work, I can't not be strict. Yeah, um, yeah, so, exactly. And I don't always tell people, you know, when I first meet them, I don't go, oh, hi, my name's Rebecca, I've got MS. Um, so they, they think I'm a bit strange. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, pretty extreme, you know, why do you eat like that? Well, it's for my health and, um, yeah. I've got to be strict, you know, for the rest of my life. And um, George, I think in conjunction with somebody else, also wrote another book called um, Recovering Recovery Stories for um, MS. Right. And I think 12 different people who were basically, you know, wheelchair-bound or very, very severe MS and they ended up being very, very well. Um, so that recovery story gives everybody a whole lot of hope as Yeah, that's, well. that's brilliant. Well, yeah. let's let's take a let's take a break away from all of the nitty gritty about the oils and stuff uh, for a moment, and let's just talk about how well you have done since you've gone down this path. Tell me, how do you monitor the progression of the condition? How often do you measure it, and how your measurements have been over the past three years? Yeah, so I have MRIs quite regularly, um, I would say probably every six months, uh, maybe even more frequently in the beginning. Um, and so they're, yeah, they're looking for basically changes in my lesions in my brain. So MS, if everybody doesn't know, MS is um, where my autoimmunity is that it's attacking my central nervous system. So it takes the sheath away from my neurons in my brain. Um, so they just basically don't work so well. So the areas that you can see on an MRI appear as spots because they are, well, they're scarred um, and they're demyelinated. Um, so every MRI that I've had since then, there's basically been no change. Um, I had one last week, one week ago, and I'm not meant to know the results because usually you have to wait a few weeks before you see the neurologist. Well, I was a bit impatient and I knew I'd be talking to you. Um, and I rang the, the clinic and I said, look, I just really, really need to know, has there been any changes? And apparently the report said um, stable, what was the terminology? Stable disease or no activity or something like that. So basically means no change, which is great. I mean, that's what I'm aiming for. So basically in the three years since diagnosis, um, I was probably doing the paleo approach for three months and then after that I went OMS and then completely plant-based. I've had no progression. So MS is a funny thing that affects everybody differently. So for me I had, um, yeah, obviously optic problems, some sensory issues with my fingertips and there's sometimes a bit of um, cognitive 
um, <laughs> here I am. Uh, <laughs> what's it called? Brain fog. That's what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so there's a bit of that that goes with it as well. And everybody's different. Like some people don't have any problems with functioning um, and thinking and all that kind of stuff, whereas other people may not be able to walk very well. So a friend of mine, her first symptom with MS was she couldn't get out of bed one day. Wow. Yeah, she went straight from having no MS to having, I think she has secondary progressive, which means basically all the damage you get stays there, doesn't go away. So, yeah, I've been lucky that I haven't had any progression. And I think, you know, years before, so I had a couple of children, which is pretty stressful on your body. And um, after that, I think probably before the birth of my second child, I was starting to get a few symptoms. And I remember going to the doctor and saying, feel right I just feel weird all the time you know a bit like I'm on a boat but not really balance issues just some weird cognitive stuff he did a few blood tests and it turned out I have um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis right that was yep. the first diagnosis. so when you have an autoimmune condition quite often you get more than one which is great and then <laughs> so I was diagnosed with that and then after the birth of my second child I got more symptoms and I always put it down to just being sleep deprived and I did have a, a bout of weird eye issues the winter before so people with ms because of the daylight and the vitamin d deficiency problems you usually tend to get a lot of symptoms in winter so i think it was going on for quite some time so i'm not sure however how many years i had it before i was actually diagnosed but yeah i've just been grateful that i haven't had any real progression since then some really interesting things there and overlap with what i've learned from uh, inflammatory arthritis um first of all um Yes, with something like rheumatoid, you quite often see particularly Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism um, uh, occur as a almost like a precursor. And, you know, it's always that order. It's always yeah. the Hashimoto's and then rheumatoid. It's always yeah. that order. And so anyone who's got the Hashimoto's is at, a, is at an extremely heightened risk of then it becoming or, or getting a second autoimmune. And I think rheumatoid and multiple sclerosis, they're like the, the, the big brother or thousand pound gorilla <laughs> kind of autoimmune. And the Hashimoto's yep. is kind of like the, the, the junior. And, uh, and I don't mean to take anything away from how bad the, that is on its own. But yeah. like in terms of life destruction, uh, there is a bigger gorilla than Hashimoto's in the form of MS and rheumatoid. I just keep um, thinking, if I only knew what I know now, oh, I, if yeah. I... And yeah, I remember distinctly going to see an endocrinologist after I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's and saying to him, is there anything I can do? Are there any dietary changes I can make? You know, anything. And he just went, no, there's nothing. Just, that's, you know, nuts. Decide- that's nuts. That's just stupid. I know. And if, But if I knew then, I mean, that was, I think, about 2010. If I knew perhaps I wouldn't have been diagnosed with MS. Perhaps I wouldn't have declined, you know, to that point. My belief is that, you probably would not have. If you ate the way that you are now after finding out you had Hashimoto's, I would be shocked if you then went on to develop multiple sclerosis or a different autoimmune condition. And let's face it, the the condition that you and I got diagnosed with is only a predisposition from a genetic sort of uh, weakness or predisposition or whatever, right? So it's kind of just the way that your body responded to the same abuse via the mouth and via the lifestyle and via particular medications that you may have taken, which I'd like to explore before we kind of wrap things up. 
prior to getting the Hashimoto's and prior to getting the MS. And so, you know, if you, if you mess things up, then the weakest point breaks down. And in your case, it was the attacking the nerve endings. And yeah. in my case, it was attacking the joints and so forth. So let's explore a little bit. What do you think caused it? Now, I can trace back most of my clients and say it was probably that or it was probably that. And in some cases, it's just absolutely shocking diet for many, many years without exercise. And in the very few cases, it's just living a Western diet in general is just a, a, a way of encouraging a problem to occur. We yeah. don't, need a, don't need a very bad Western diet to have a potential problematic outcome. Mm -hmm. Do you think there was one thing like taking a lot of antibiotics or taking painkillers every month for your monthly cycle for two decades? Or was it maybe um, something else like, uh, I don't know, was there something you think was a great contributor? Yeah, so knowing what I know now, only recently I've been starting to put it together and I've been thinking about what my life was like. Let's say six and a half years ago, just before my son was born, no exercise. I didn't go outside very much because I have the kind of pale skin where I've had a couple of skin cancers removed already. So, you know, we don't go outside and expose our skin. I ate rubbish food. I mean, you know, I was trying to lose weight sometimes. I was always a little bit overweight as well, um, just by about, you know, five or six kilos, but my whole life just a little bit overweight. And so I would eat things like a chicken salad, thinking that was really healthy, um, trying to cut down on carbs because, you know, carbs are really bad for you apparently. Um, but I would eat lots of gluten. So gluten's another thing I've um, removed from my diet. Uh, because of the potential for leaky gut um, and autoimmunity and molecular mimicry, and so I don't eat dairy for that reason. Whereas before, I, you know, you had to have dairy for strong bones, especially being a woman. You know, you got to have lots of cheese and milk and stuff. So yeah, it was pretty awful. And antibiotics. Um, when I had my son, you know, I was breastfeeding, so I had mastitis. I take antibiotics all the time. When I actually had him, I had a cesarean but I had um, a really bad chest infection and I had two courses of very strong antibiotics. I was coughing <laughs> while I was having my cesarean. I was coughing. Um, it was just horrible. It was just a perfect storm, really. Yeah. Um, sleep deprivation. You know, when you've got a little baby, it's fine. Yeah. You know, they need you in the nighttime. And I always, you know, spent a lot of time with both my children in the nighttime. But that does play a big role, I think, in mm. – um, just generally wellness and it just I wasn't a healthy person. Mm. So I think there are a lot of things that went on that led to it. And it took time. Like I can look back over the last 10 years and see how it progressed. And I should if I, and I know I should have looked at the warning signs, but I didn't know. Mm. And I'd ask the professionals, you know, I'd say to them, even the first neurologist I saw, I said, is there anything I can do, <laughs> any dietary changes I can make? said, no, nothing can help. You can mm. try. It won't hurt, but it won't help you. Mm. And um, now I know that the complete opposite, that, you know, you can actually heal. It takes time. George's program, he says it takes three to five years to for the diet to actually take effect. Um, so it takes time. You know, I was 40 when I was diagnosed. So 40 years of just mm. eating standard diet, doing what everybody said I should have done. And um, 
yeah, didn't do many favours. Yeah, we all wish we could turn back the clock. <laughs> um, it's amazing when you reach a state of enlightenment. Certainly, in one in the part of life when it comes to food, you feel you do feel a sense of regret because um, really it is simple. I mean, as much as we've talked about making some compromises to an ideal eating approach, where a little bit of this, a little bit of that, um, various authors who either through suggested science or through their own sort of wanting to appease more people or somewhere in between, you know, I personally look back and think I wouldn't have made any mistakes and I did not make any, uh, knowingly make any mistakes once I knew the way that I had to eat so as to keep disease as an absolute minimum. And um, we go through life and we just continue to eat blindly without thought, without compassion, without thinking like... You know, I reckon that half the population would eliminate eating animal products if they spent just a half hour in an abattoir. And you've even put an abattoir aside and don't even worry about the stench and the filth and the horrors of the abattoir. But let's just see someone actually try and kill their own lamb. I want to see someone try and do it. I reckon one in a hundred people would successfully kill a lamb and then cut it up and then cook it and eat it. And, and, I think the, it was delicious. <laughs> and the the process of watching that animal suffer and having to have the the savage kind of real Neanderthal mindset to be able to end its life so that you can eat it doesn't mm. exist in the human body or it really unless we're in a survival last meal or die sort of state. So anyway, I'm digressing. But the point <laughs> the point <laughs> the point is the point is that once you know how to eat and, it, and you have a reason that's big enough, a big enough stick to keep you on that path, then it's actually pretty easy. And I don't find any problems with the way I eat. In fact, I love no, I think, it. I think you and I are quite similar in that sense. But I do know a lot of women, and for MS, mostly women are diagnosed, and I, I don't think they even know why. I think it's 75% women who have MS. They still won't change their diets. They know, they've been told, and we're on forums, you know, and, and people say, oh, I'm doing really poorly, and I'm like, oh, have you heard of OMS? But they don't want to hear it. They don't want to know because that means they have to give up their cheese. I know one woman, she actually works at the chemist I go to, and she's got MS, and, and she said, oh, no, I just can't give up the cheese. And then she complains about, you know, all these problems that she's having with MS. And I'm like, just you know, give it a go. Cheese doesn't taste as good. There's actually a quote in um, one of George's books about a couple driving along and they can smell um, a hamburger joint or something like that and they go, oh, that smells amazing. And the, the person with MS actually says, no, it actually smells like wheelchairs. <laughs> so, you know, it's like what would you rather? You know, I would rather walk. And I yeah. think my motivation is my children. You know, they were just tiny at the time I was diagnosed. So yeah. it was just heartbreaking to think that, I would be going to their school to pick them up in a wheelchair or, you know, how would they feel about that and mm. wouldn't be able to run around or ride bikes. We ride bikes together. We wouldn't be able to do that. Mm. So what more motivation do people need to just stop putting that from their mouth, you know, and chocolate? Like people just can't. Yeah. Look, you and I talk in the same language and um, <laughs> and I've got the discipline of a machine, right? Nothing can get in the way of me getting what I, what I yeah. want as an outcome for my health. So let's talk about next steps for you. Do you have a blog or do you have a way of people can can watch what you do, see how you eat? Are you on Instagram? How can people learn more? 
Yeah, um, I don't have a blog at this stage. I've been asked a couple of times. I think it's just a time factor. Mm-hmm. Um, I work, got a family and, you know, and mm-hmm. keeping yourself well takes time, oh, you yeah, know. No doubt, yeah. My own food, I, tr- I don't buy anything processed. You know, even for the kids, I'm preparing their foods from scratch. Um, so everything takes time. I am on um, Instagram um, and I have got, I guess, my Gmail account too, which I'm, I'm really happy to talk to people as well. Um mm-hmm. I actually presented it. There was a nutrition and healthcare conference in Adelaide last year. I think it was November. Uh, Dr. Michael Clapper came out to Australia. So I was asked to present there and tell my story, which was really, really nice. And I got to meet a few people and just you know, answer a few questions. And actually there was another woman who presented there who had rheumatoid arthritis. So we both got up. Dr. Clapper spoke. He was amazing. Then I told my story and then this woman came up and told her story about RA. And she had, I think, for 40 years. So she had um, lots of, you know, swollen joints and she said she could barely walk. She couldn't go to the toilet by herself, all that kind of stuff. But she changed her diet and within like two weeks all her pain was gone and and she broke down and cried. Mm. And the whole auditorium was in tears. And it was such a powerful story to have such chronic pain for so many years and then for it to just disappear. Um, was just amazing. And I, and I went up to her afterwards and said, like, my story is nothing compared to hers, you know. Like, I haven't had the pain. I think that's one thing I have to be grateful for. With my MS anyway, there's no pain at this stage. Um, but, yeah, her story was just incredible. Um, yeah, and it was a real honour to meet Dr. Clapham. Mm. Yeah, I'm really happy. Like, you know, that's why I'm talking to you. I just want people to know. <laughs> I find it really yeah. hard sometimes to not tell people. People get a little bit sick of me saying, <laughs> so, you know, do you realise bacon causes cancer? Mm. So, no good. No, I can see that you've got the the fire in the belly to go and uh, spread this message uh, a lot more. And um, if you just keep that vision in your mind of being on stage and telling and and helping people, then it the floodgates open and people reach out to you, and you can definitely find that there's a there's a platform, however you want. As I said, like yeah. stage or online or whatever, but certainly. Um, your your story is in um, is in high need of being shared a lot more. So think about dream about the way you want to do it. Yeah, I think so. And I think a lot of people say that you know you can have books and you can have publications. It can be all the science in the world, but it's people's individual stories yep. that motivate other people to change. Exactly. Look at our whole podcast. I don't know how much like this is podcast number one hundred and two or something like that, right? And I think something like 80 of them are just people's stories, just telling yes. stories because people can relate. People can see themselves in your shoes. People can feel that situation or they've been there or they've had experiences like that or know someone like that. And they can, they can connect and it moves people to take action or, to, or in some cases just to stay on track because it's yeah. a hard road, this road. It's a yeah. it's a it's a challenge when we have distractions and influences around us, all of which aren't going to support our health. So thank you. So thanks for coming on the show. Um, I just want to mention um, that we will be meeting each other in person. Yeah. We're going to be both attending a conference in February that's going to be held in Melbourne, and it has been made known recently that Dr. Neil Barnard is going to be at the conference. It's going to be the biggest plant-based event that Australia's ever seen with Dr. Neil Barnard as well as Dr. Scott Stoll, who organises the 
plant-based nutrition in healthcare conference in Anaheim every year that has over a thousand doctors attend from all around the world, uh, which I was at last year. So he's going to be speaking at the event. I believe we've got a couple of other international speakers. I'll actually be hosting. I'll be hosting the event, so it's going to be a, a great opportunity for me as well to, you know, meet. Oh, I know Dr. Stoll, but it'll be nice to meet Dr. Bernard and just to connect with other like-minded individuals. So, if you're listening to this around about the time that it's released, then we're talking about this conference being in February 2019. So, um, everyone can come and attend the conference. It's not just for the medical community. However, the presenters will be a lot of doctors talking a lot of medical literature and convincing science based around um, uh, what's been published and what's been shown. But certainly it's going to be a great event for the public too. So we want to encourage everyone to come and I'd love people who uh, like the things that I do to come and I can meet you there and I'll be telling my story at the event too. So uh, it'd be great to meet you in person, Rebecca. That'll be lovely. Yeah. Nice to meet you. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your story and congratulations on how well you're doing and keep up the great work. Yep, thank you. You've been listening to the Patterson Program. For more information, visit pattersonprogram.com.